I'm Rebecca Rothstein, and along with my co-host, Leanne Daly, we'd like to welcome you to Say It Forward. Each week, we'll be doing one of my favorite things to do, and that's interviewing interesting people with out-of-the-ordinary life stories. They're all people who took a different path in life. Some never imagined the heights they would achieve, and others, well, they turned their childhood dreams into reality. So let's begin. Today, we welcome Fran Drescher, the multi-talented actress, comedian, writer, and activist. Fran is best known for her breakout show, The Nanny, the wildly successful 90s sitcom that she created, wrote, and starred in. Her character, Fran Fine, with her signature Queen's accent and brash, charming, flashy style, was one of the first Jewish women to be portrayed on TV and one of the first women to spearhead and act in her own sitcom. The Nanny became a huge sensation. So big, in fact, that it tied household ratings with the now infamous mega-hit, Roseanne. Now, 25 years later, with the resurgence for 90s nostalgia, Fran has never been more popular. The Instagram account at WhatFranWore has more than 250,000 followers. Fans on Twitter launched a campaign for a reboot of The Nanny, starring the appropriately cast Cardi B. Fran is busier than ever, from Broadway to comedy to TV to indie films. She's an advocate for women's health issues, and her second book, Cancer Schmancer, about her own fight with uterine cancer, led to the creation of her own organization to promote policy change, early detection, and prevention of cancer. So let's rewind to the beginning and say it forward with this Jane of all trades, the multi-talented Fran Drescher. We have the unbelievable pleasure of sitting here overlooking the Pacific Ocean with the beautiful Fran Drescher. So thank you so much for letting us come into this spectacular house. Thank you. And to our listeners, if you hear any panting in the background, it's not the four of us panting, it's the dog. (laughs) Samson, there's not hot sex happening, unfortunately. (laughs) It's just Samson Drescher. So we would like to begin... At the beginning, we would love to have you tell us your early story. Where were you born in the early years? Where were you brought up and sort of started? Well, I was raised in Flushing, Queens, in a uh, town called Kew Garden Hills. Not that there were any hills there, you know, like a middle class neighborhood of working people. It was an innocent, provincial, sweet place to come from, I must say. And Simon and Garfunkel came from that neighborhood, and that song in my little town was where I grew up. That's what they were describing. Jerry Seinfeld was in the neighboring town, and we both went to Queens College. And Ray Romano was actually in my graduating class at high school. So, you know, it was an interesting little community that out of which came some pretty incredible talent. Uh, Of course, my now gay ex-husband was my high school sweetheart, and so we met in high school in 10th grade in the drama club. And my parents, you know, are very sweet people, very madly in love to this day. And I'm very grateful that I still have them. And dad worked two jobs when I was very young and then eventually got a job as a systems analyst working as a civilian employee for the Navy. And uh, I have a sister who's one year older than me, and she's now Uh, has a doctorate in nursing and works at NYU. It was a small life. My mom worked around the corner at a discount drugstore and then later on at a bridal shop 
I've been working since I was like 13 years old. I forged my working papers. I was one of these <laughs> kids that, you know, never wanted to be a burden on my parents, wanted, was always trying to be so good. So I started working very young as a cashier at a supermarket and then at a uh, chicken takeout place. Though, both of those were around the corner from where we lived. And then like a mile away, I ended up working with Peter at the local movie theater and I sold the tickets and he was an usher though sometimes he was behind the candy counter. So you were 16 when you two met each other? 15. 15. Oh, my God. Yeah, 15 when we met. And it was, we were putting on the show Charlie Brown, and I was in the show, and he was the pianist. He's a very good piano player. And that was where we met, and we, we became fast friends. And by the time we graduated, we were a couple. Graduated high school? Yes, We've kind of been together ever since, except for a brief couple of years where we were splitting up and had to figure out how to put our relationship on a new shelf, which we um, gratefully did. And, you know, now we're, you know, the best of friends and family in every sense of the word. And we're writing partners. Yeah. You know, we're still writing together. So I want to go back a little bit performance like was it something happening in your house did you listen to albums of performance like what were the influences on you as a kid well I think probably watching I Love Lucy reruns was a big influence I was very struck by uh, her comedic talent and I also was influenced by Audrey Hepburn and her look and um, for whatever reason I aspire to grow beyond where I came from. Not everybody was like that. Many, many people uh, were happy with the lives we were all living and are still there. And there's nothing wrong with that either. But for whatever reason, I didn't want that. And I always aspired towards having a bigger life and a very successful life. And uh, I I was actually uh, good at many things and enjoyed doing many things. So the problem for me was, what was I going to make my career? Mm -hmm. And because um, I went to a public high school that was uh, very innovative at the time, and you were kind of required to choose a pre-career, and you'd go for half the day to special classes in that chosen career. So, you know, it got me kind of forced to think in ninth grade, which was still junior high or middle school, what they call it now, you know, well, which specialization did I want to take in high school? And through careful consideration, and I find it amazing that I even processed it this way, but I thought, what is it that I enjoy doing the most that rarely seems like work? Because that should be what I make my job. That's like whole books uh, have been written about uh, that, right? I mean, you you understood that. Yeah. And I decided that acting was seemed the most effortless and the most enjoyable for me to do. I mean, you know, it, uh, I had thought at some, one point, you know, I enjoy teaching and having an expertise in something. But then I thought, and I, this was even prior to that, I knew instinctively that I would not like seeing these kids passing through my classroom and going on 
to experience their lives while I was standing still in this classroom. I knew that that would feel almost like a prison for me. And so I immediately, you know, crossed that off the list. I didn't, I, I didn't want to be a teacher. I wanted to be a star. Were you in a school that had plays and gatherings and lots of performing artists, or was this... In high school, we had an unbelievable theater department. I mean, it rivaled many universities. It was really state-of-the-art. I don't know... This was a public high school, too, right? Yes, but we were really, really lucky. The 70s was very dedicated to new kinds of education programs. There was money being plowed into that. Kids were coming from all over to go to it, which was nice. Not only were you doing this in high school, but you ran for a be- in a beauty contest. Yes. Was it a single time that you did yes, that or did you yes, do that multiple? I did, never made a career out of it. It really wasn't my thing. But I was listening to the radio one morning. A commercial came on that said, if you know, you're between the ages of 13 and 18, and you have 15 bucks, you can <laughs> enter the Miss New York Teenager pageant. And I was, I, I think, either about to turn 15 or 16. And I entered because in my head, I thought, I want to be a professional and maybe I can get an agent if I have this credential. So I I entered and then I had to get, of course, they tell you, you know, what's involved and I needed to buy a dress, and I already knew that I wanted to look more all-American, you know, because uh, this was before uh, Saturday Night Fever, but uh, just a couple of years. So the look of the 70s was very prevalent, and the Farrah Fawcett, and, you know, this is the style of the day. And instinctively, or observing commercials on TV, nobody really looked like that. Mm -hmm. They were all more white bread, more all American, uh, more wholesome, all of that. And so I kind of styled myself to not be like, you know, the girl from Queens, but to be more whatever my version of All-American was. So, you know, it was held over a weekend. Everybody's parents were there, and they asked questions, and you walked a runway. There was no bathing suit. There was no real talent, even. It was just spontaneous questions, and you filled out forms so Mm -hmm. they knew stuff about you, and walking around. And I can't even remember if there was anything else, but I don't know whether there was hundreds or like a thousand. But it very quickly started to pare down until it was just like, you know, 20 and then 10. And I was still in it. So you'd stand there smiling and the judges would walk through looking at all the girls and making their notes quite seriously. And then uh, I ended up being the first runner up and I was devastated. I felt like such a loser. And I remember (laughs) driving home and my parents were saying to me, you know, your first runner-up, there were so many girls that you did win. And I didn't feel like a winner. And I didn't think that first runner-up was as good as the winner. So when I started calling agents, I told them I won. 
<laughs> and uh, <laughs> see, that's an easy fact to check, right? Well, no, I don't not think then. They were. Not then. No. Nah. And and also, I mean, I'm, I was such a kid. It was like they. I sent in pictures that, of course, my parents took of me, and I told them I was Miss New York teenager, and you know, Love that. so I did get I did get interviews for representation. And eventually I did get, I started doing commercials and I got an agent that booked me on Saturday Night Fever. Yeah. And uh, a dad's root beer commercial. And he was the one that said to me, and I still know him because years later, it turns out that he was good friends with someone who is now my Broadway attorney. So small world. But uh, he was the one that said, he doesn't think I should keep the name Francine. Do Fran, he said, not Francine. And he said, you know, Fran has a fun aspect to it. Francine, it's not you. So I cut it short. When they asked you questions, did you make them laugh? Because you you are so quick-witted just as a just sitting here with I probably you. did make them laugh because I was very natural yeah. in my own skin. So I didn't try to be funny, mm-hmm. but I think that I probably was funny about certain things. And then I also had the wherewithal to talk about uh, volunteer stuff that I had done that would make me seem more like I was uh, civic-minded and uh, supportive of community efforts and all of that, which I wasn't making it up, but, Mm -hmm. you know, I made a point of uh, bringing that forward. And truth be told, I mean, these girls were from New York City. And you you were from Staten Island. Oh, Queens. Uh, Queens. All the boroughs. And I was right, yeah. I mean, all the boroughs of New York. I remember specifically them asking one girl about, because she had filled out on her form that she likes to sew. And they asked her, what do you sew? And she says, oh, rips and tears. (laughs) What? (laughs) 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 She came in second runner up. Uh. The first one, of course, the winner was Uh. blonde haired, blue eyed. Yeah. And that was the beginning of it all because, you know, and I was lucky because when I was coming up in the ranks as a pro, it was you know, Happy Days, Laverne and Shirley, and uh, Welcome Back, Cotter. So that whole genre of kind of street humor and um, 50s, you know, hitter type and grease, all of that was very prevalent. So I kind of fit right into that. And so there was a lot of work for me Mm -hmm. when I was first starting out. Mm -hmm. And I just booked a lot of things. It was because I I think it was refreshingly natural. I would think about things to say that would be, you know, unique and original. Let's go back to the early wins of roles because you were in some incredible, what I consider to be enduring films. You were in Ragtime. You were in Saturday Night Fever. You were in Spinal Tap. Yeah. I mean, all of them endure, too, in in one way or another. The test of time, yeah, yeah, truly. Even, you know, uh, Beautician and the Beast is unending. In fact, Sherry (laughs) Lansing had said to me, because she was president of Paramount when we did that picture, and she said, I wish every movie was like that. It wasn't a huge box office hit, but it's the gift that keeps on giving. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. People love that movie around the world, and it's unstoppable. I did another... uh, music-driven movie besides Saturday Night Fever and and uh, Spinal Tap, which was 
Uh, American Hot Wax, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. And the reason why that movie is kind of very obscure is because when Paramount made that movie, they didn't cut a deal for anything beyond the film. Nobody saw where the industry was going. There's so much great music and musicians in that, and it would just be too expensive to try and have gone back to renegotiate. So the, so de- it was the never deal, into a video. the deal, the deal sort of put a put an anchor on the the potential of the show itself. You know, I think once in a while you might see it on cable, right? But it, I think it would have. It's one of those. I mean, amazing movies. But they didn't have the foresight to see yeah. where it was going. Yeah, yeah. For ragtime, did you have to learn the Yiddish, or did you know a little bit of it? Like how? Because you were so completely fierce and believable. Thank you. And you were like 20, right? Or not even. How old were you? Um, I think I was uh, probably 22 or 23, Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. very young. And I was actually uh, screen tested for the role of Emma Goldman Mm -hmm. in that movie. A part that ultimately got cut, and I think maybe was miscast because it wasn't a Jewish actress that Milish Foreman ended up putting into that role. And uh, he ended up giving me that smaller role of Mama, uh, Mandy Patankin's wife. Right. And still, you know, we spent uh, time rehearsing it, meeting in Milish's ap- apartment, me and Mandy. And I felt like my character was the Evelyn Nesbeth of the Jewish ghetto. Yes. So I um, convinced Milos that I should speak broken English in addition to Yiddish, not just Yiddish, because I was didn't identify myself with the rest of them. I love that you fought to speak broken English. How do you fight with Milos Foreman well, to speak I broken mean, English? I, well, I had a convincing argument. And I convinced him, you know, and and I had an ulterior motive. I wanted to speak English in this movie. I wanted the audience to understand what I was saying some of the time. Mm -hmm. That's a very feminist, interesting thing, (laughs) right? Whether it was intentionally, but you were wanting them to understand her as a human being. Yes. Yeah. And that's why when I said, what do you give me? Nothing but Cirrus, you know, it's like he was judging me and throwing my stuff out of the window. And But I wasn't cowering to him. And I think that there's a thread of that through all of my uh, characters, no matter who I play. There totally is. I mean, one of the things about the nanny that I always noticed is, you know, underestimate this person at your own risk. Well, you know, the global message of that show, which I always uh, said to uh, our writers repeatedly, was it doesn't matter what you look like or what you sound like. It's what's in your heart that counts. And I was very um, influenced by Woody Allen's interiors because that was a very dour family that was infiltrated by this Jewish woman that the father had a great attraction for because she was full of life and laughed and drank a little too much and danced in the middle of the living room and wore a red dress to dinner. 
And that was why in the theme song to The Nanny, she was the lady in red when everybody else is wearing tan. It brought color into that home that was so bland and uh, didn't know how to be a family and didn't know how to communicate and didn't have the warmth or the heart that this you know, outspoken, rough around the edges, Jewish working class girl brought to them. Mm -hmm. So there's that element of influence from the Woody Allen movie that was something that we talked about a lot, as did we talk about making the nanny as funny as the peripheral and supporting cast. A very difficult task to do as a, as writers. They did it very well in I Love Lucy. She was always the clown, but everybody else got to be funny too. Mm-hmm. They did not do it well when they spun uh, Rhoda off into her own show with Valerie Harper. She was the second banana in Mary Tyler Moore, and she was very funny. And then she became more of the voice of reason in her own show, surrounded by these characters that were very funny and dancing around Mm -hmm. her. Mm -hmm. That was a pitfall they fell into that I didn't want to go. I didn't want to do that. You know, it, her show was successful, uh, for a while and, uh, but, uh, but her character wasn't the same. She changed. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and I knew what my strength was as a comedian and that it is a very challenging thing for writers to write the centerpiece, not as the voice of reason, as the clown, and still have everybody else Mm -hmm. be funny. Mm -hmm. Very challenging. So you're obviously a a big student and sort of analyst of the dynamic. I'm so much like my dad, who's a systems analyst, and our other writing partner team, Rob Stern and and his wife, Prudence Frazier. Rob's, I think, mother or father was a systems analyst too. And he and I were the ones that really liked to uh, crack the code on things. Uh, Even making Mr. Sheffield British was an absolute choice to divert the uh, U.S. from seeing her as a Jew, but more as a blue-collar American who had a union-working father and wouldn't cross a picket line and, you know, just more working class, even though we never hid the fact that she was Jewish. We were, uh, you know, I mean, we went to Temple. I dated a cantor. We had a bris. Uh, You know, uh, my mother wanted, I had a little tattoo that she wanted removed so I could be buried at a Jewish cemetery. (laughs) You know, all of this stuff um, was, we went to Israel, you know. All of this stuff really had not been explored in primetime sitcoms. You taught America Yiddish. That's true. I mean, you (laughs) really did because you never pulled the punch of using a Yiddish word. And, no, we always yeah. explained it because they'd look at me like I had two heads, uh-huh. and then and but eventually they started 
you know, saying the words. And it was just so uh, good humored. And we made fun of my voice all the time in the world that she lived Mm -hmm. so that the audience could relax and laugh at me, too. Mm -hmm. It was very Uh, not pretentious, too. The show had no pretension. It was warm and endearing. And you loved who. It was was rich in specificity. Well, you know, Procter & Gamble wanted to buy the show outright if the nanny was written Italian, not Jewish. Mm. Wow. They said that out loud. (laughs) They did indeed. Excuse me. That was their request. And uh, I kind of said, because I knew I couldn't act it and they couldn't, um, we couldn't write it with the richness that we wanted the show to have. And so we said, the, the nanny must be Jewish. And thank God the network obliged us. That was still... A family-owned, a Jewish family-owned network. And so I think that it's all about timing. I don't think we could have gotten away with that today. Well, ta- the, the, the character, the British side, you know, who these British people are so proper, worked so beautifully together. He was he was fantastic, Mr. Sheffield. He was fantastic. Yeah, it was such such a smart move to create that foil between him and her, so that her Jewishness was could come forward without being the main thing. Yes. Right? Um, tell the story about how you came up with the idea for the nanny. What that oh. whole journey? You went on a trip. You yes. got a first class ticket. Yes. Like what's that story? I had uh, you know I did a short lived series with Julie Haggerty and Twiggy uh, that only lasted like four episodes, and then I did a pilot uh, at, for the all for the same network, mm-hmm. CBS. Mm-hmm. And then I did a pilot, and that didn't get picked up. And then I said to Peter, you know, a girlfriend of mine said, come visit her. She had just bought this country house on a vineyard in southwestern France. And uh, she said, come visit. And I cashed in frequent flyer miles on TWA. Wow. (laughs) And they were actually running a special, so I had enough miles to sit in first class. And uh, who walks onto the plane but the president of CBS on that very flight going to France. And I said, Jeff. And he said, Fran. And I thought, thank you, Lord. And I ran into the bathroom to put some makeup on. (laughs) I'm powdering my face. I'm saying carpe diem, carpe diem, seize the day. Because I knew this was an opportunity of a lifetime. And when I came out, you know, I started kind of hitting on him how I had a show for him for me. And he was a captive audience because where was he going to go, coach? (laughs) And I love that you just said hitting on him because, you know, my girlfriend just wrote a book called um, The Feminine Revolution, and it's about using your beautiful feminine qualities (laughs) to get, you know, to get your Uh, idea across. (laughs) Yeah, you know, I mean, I wasn't flirting with him in the way that, I mean, he very happily married to this day. But I have zero problem with my body. I don't, uh, I don't deny it. I'm often told, you know, you're very sexy. And it's not that I'm playing sexy. I'm not trying to be sexy. I think part of being sexy is being comfortable in your own skin. Authenticity. Not apologizing. You have a a lot of... of, And I may have learned that lesson from my mom because my mom was always overweight, but with an hourglass figure. And she sold it as Zoftic, never heavy. You know, she sold voluptuous, I should (laughs) say. 
voluptuous. Softic is the Yiddish. Yes, for voluptuous. And, you know, that was a very good role model. You know, she was unapologetic for being a size 12 or 14. And, uh, you know, she was boobalicious and, you know, she was uh, she was kind of flirty, actually, but very um, sweet, too, like a really funny, joyful person. And uh, I think I emulated that uh, from her. I think she was kind of anyway, by the time we pulled into Charles de Gaulle, he said, all right. When we get back to L.A., you can uh, call my office. I'll set you up a meeting with the head of comedy development and you can pitch your ideas, which I didn't even have at the time. But then I was hanging out with Twiggy, the one and only, his little, you know, For those British schoolgirl daughter. Yeah, yeah. She's the supermodel of the 60s. And now she was just she's being honored as a dame. Yeah. Oh, really? yes. I by saw the that. Queen of England. Go back for a minute to your mom and your sister. Are, are your, uh, your parents alive? Yes, and still madly in love. I want to go back to landing and going to the southwest part of France. Yes. Because I, I need for the audience to understand the, the sort of series of events and the, the mind that thought up this great well, show. Well, um, the truth of the matter is, when I went to the girlfriend that invited me on a, to her vineyard, she neglected to mention that her two toddlers were going to be with us. And I had never lived with kids, and I could not believe how much crying they did. And it was driving me mad. And Peter called, and uh, I said, "I this is no vacation." And for, I forced my girlfriend; she didn't even have a TV. We we went. I I I said, "You have to buy stuff for these kids. Get, give them a TV. Let's get them a little plaything outside." <laughs> what did you, What are you Were you thinking? So you know, we we got patio furniture. We got a swing set. We got, you know, TV, but still, when Peter called me and said, uh, you know, Twiggy said, you should, you're so close to London, you should come visit. Normally, I would not have changed my return plan. And uh, then I'm schlepping her daughter around London because her and Lee were working, which she didn't mention, but okay, whatever. And you're talking I about Twiggy's really, daughter now. Yes. Okay. How old is Twiggy's and daughter? Only like time. 11 or 12. <laughs> And so we're we're out touring the city of London. And all of a sudden, the kid says to me, oh, Fran, my new shoes are hurting me. And I'm thinking, what the hell is she telling me for? <laughs> Does she think I'm going to take her home now? Because I'm not ready. So I said to her, oh, sweetie, just step on the backs of them. And she says so innocently, won't that break them? <laughs> and I said, break them in. Well, I couldn't get this relationship out of my head. It felt so funny to me that I wasn't telling her what was good for her, like most adults. I was telling her what was good for me. So I called Peter. I couldn't sleep at all. I called Peter at 5 a.m. and it was nine hours earlier here. And I said, I think I thought of the idea to pitch to CBS. What do you think of a spin on The Sound of Music? Only instead of Julie Andrews, I come to the door. And he thought for a minute, and he's got a very good sense for these things. And he said, that's it. That's that's the idea we'll develop as soon as you get back, and we'll take it to CBS. And that's exactly what we did. We went into the head of development with that, you know, line. He went into Jeff's office, the president. Fran Drescher is the nanny from hell. And it was green-lighted immediately. That's amazing. 
Yeah. And, and were, we started jumping the hurdles. We knew uh, when we shot the pilot, we caught lightning in a bottle. The audience had never seen the show, never knew the characters, nothing. It was a pilot. They were with us. They got it. They got the whole thing, the relationships, who everybody was, the jokes they were anticipating. You'd hear people, oh, you know, and stuff like that. They were just so with us. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And you don't always get that with a pilot because they're just getting to know the characters. And it's all kind of like... Uh, I don't even know what the, I don't get what this show is about yet, but this was, you know, so, it's also one it. of those shows that you can say it today. Everybody knows it. They could put you in that moment in time. How many shows can you say that were made in the nineties that you can actually say that about? And no? they're still writing, uh, you know, it still has a very strong social media presence. Right. And it's still resonating. Like you have this gigantic Instagram following about what Fran wore. Uh, yes. I mean, like, yes. the, the, it echoes, a, kind of. Now there's uh, a comparing my wardrobe to art, fine art. And, and there are so many fans out there that are constantly talking about it. And it's still on. It's currently on Cozy yeah. TV and a few other uh, networks. And, uh, you know, look, I I'm just so grateful. And it's all over the world. Yeah. It continues to be watched and loved and very successfully. I, I heard a soundbite recently from you talking about um, the connection between yourself and Cardi B because you were sort of the originator of all the different sort of yeah, like... Yeah, she made that connection actually on her Instagram showing pictures of me and pictures of her on red carpets and things where she's trying to uh, emulate my style from then. Yeah. And uh, I, I found it, you know, wildly flattering and then I wanted to, I was curious about her and I realized that this woman has a very funny voice yeah yeah voice. yeah <laughs> I heard Cardi B on um Howard about on Howard Stern a couple of weeks ago yeah and I thought at the time that she sounded she reminded me of you yeah, in so, the way she know, talks I always think that there's enough synergy there where we're gonna do something together you so will fantastic. you will you totally will yeah I really totally want will. to talk about what you're working on now with Cancer Schmancer. I am overwhelmed by the generosity of time and spirit that you have and your dedication to this organization and the work that you're That's doing so and pioneering well, something. Let, let Can we talk about this, that a little bit? You know, uh, first of all, bad things happen to good people. What we do with it, how we work through it, and what becomes of us as a result is what makes all the difference. And I have found and I recommend this because no one leaves this planet unscathed, is turning your pain into purpose is very healing and helps to make sense out of the senseless. So I first wrote what became the New York Times bestseller, Cancer Schmancer, because I didn't want what happened to me to happen to other people by means of misdiagnosis and mistreatment for two years and eight doctors. It was an amazing... And by horrible. the grace of God, I was still in stage one, but I got in the stirrups more times than Django. <laughs> and, uh, you know... <laughs> And every doctor had a different, uh, you know, solution for my symptoms. You know, leg pain, I'll drink gin and tonic before going to bed. Uh, stool change, stop eating so much spinach. Uh, uh, hard breasts, uh, you got the tits of an 18-year-old. 
which of course we I do, but there I was, <laughs> you know, in need of roughage, going to bed sloshed in some vain attempt to cure myself. And ultimately, I did get diagnosed with uterine cancer and uh, needed a radical hysterectomy to remove all the plumbing. So I went through a period where I felt very betrayed by the medical community and betrayed by my own body and uh, bitter. I was with the younger guy and uh, we were talking about having kids. I never wanted kids until I was with him. And then I understood what other women feel when they say, I want to have his baby. And I wanted that. And then my choice was taken away. And it, uh, it you know, screwed with my head a little bit. Can we spend a minute on how you finally got to the right diagnosis? Well, uh, yes. Uh, You know, I am not someone that accepts a benign diagnosis if I feel like something's wrong. Now, I'm a producer. Maybe I'm a control freak. Um, But in this instance, it saved my life because most people, when they're scared something's wrong and the doctor's telling them basically you're perimenopausal, And we just haven't found the right hormone combination to balance you out. You know, they'll uh, they're they're fine with that. They're happy with that. They like the good news. But I didn't feel like anything was helping me, and I felt like I was getting worse. And uh, it wasn't until the last doctor actually also put me on an HRT, a hormone replacement therapy, where I had breakthrough bleeding 24-7 because she had estrogen in hers, which is like taking poison. When you have uterine cancer. Yeah, it's bad. So, you know, my body was very upset with it. I called her. She was, you know, doing a talk show in Chicago or something and said, stop the uh, HRT. It's probably just the wrong. She was so convinced she was right. But when I come home, we'll do an endometrial biopsy, you know, just to be sure. And that is an in-office test that takes, you know, some tissue biopsy from the uterus rather than, it's like a pap test, only higher up. So it's kind of painful because I have to go past the cervix. While she's doing it, she's telling me that Mike and I have to go to a fertility doctor if I want to have a child with this doctor, we need to make an embryo immediately because she was so convinced I had like five minutes left of fertility. And uh, three days later, she was calling me saying, I'm very surprised, but you have adenocarcinoma. And I said, what's that? And she said, uterine cancer. And, you know, that was the dividing line, um, you know, BC and AC before and after cancer. And, uh, you know, life as you know it completely changes. But this is the kind of thing that happens to most people. One day, one random Wednesday afternoon, life's going to bite you on the ass. And the world as you know it stops and changes radically and will never come back the same way. You must, you know, shift gears and create a new normal for yourself, playing the hand that's been dealt you. But that's not to say you're not going to kick and scream and say, why me, Lord? Because you are. But at some point, you're going to reach a 
a fork or a crossroads where you're going to have to choose either to remain bitter, angry, and cemented into what was supposed to be, or play the hand that's been dealt you as elegantly and graciously as you possibly can. And I chose the latter. You know, I mean, I had to get to that place. And I remember even Mike was saying, you know, you're not going to heal your body if you remain this upset. You just have wow. to let it go. And I wrote four drafts of Cancer Schmancer Longhand before I found my funny bone again. Oh, wow. And that's the draft that everybody gets yeah. to read. And so it was very cathartic because exactly the with the pen, thinking. I got out a lot of my anguish and had to keep remembering, remembering, remembering until I started to remember funny things that were happening. I think that part of the Cancer Schmancer movement is transforming from being a patient to being a medical consumer. The very word patient implies passivity, and that's not what we're about. And that's why even the name Cancer Schmancer means cancer is not the boss of me. And you have to become better partners with your physician because it's so easy to slip through the cracks. It, you, you can't be intimidated by your doctor. There are tests that you should know about that may not even be on the menu at the doctor's office simply because health insurance doesn't think that you, you know, they want to cover that. And that's not good enough. You know, no. you need to, you have to have the option. Maybe you want to pay for it, you know, but you may not even be told about it. And actually that endometrial biopsy that ultimately diagnosed me, doctor number one said I was too young for. And I didn't think, well, what did, what would it prove or disprove? I was just glad to be too young for anything. And, you know, two years later, it was actually the test that diagnosed me. And even then, when I got the diagnosis and I was then uh, told to move over to this gynecologic oncologist, my sister, who's a nurse, said, have her take the endometrial biopsy again. Do it in a controlled environment, not in an office, but in a hospital, and uh, let her be in charge of her own test results. And I didn't really want to take the test again simply because it was, it is uncomfortable. Uh, I mean, it literally lasts a minute. But, you know, in that minute, you're like biting the bullet because you see stars. But because my sister said to do it, I did it. Even though the oncologist said, you know, I had the pathologist check and recheck. This is your tissue and it is you and you do have this. And I said, I'm not doubting that I have it. But my sister said that you should do it. And uh, ironically, she called me the next day and said, am I glad we listened to your sister? Because the gynecologist took too superficial a sampling and where she was picking up on cells that were just turning to grade one, I picked up on cells that were already grade three and four. And I said, well, what's the highest grade? She said, four. So you have a very mature cancer. I would say that you've had this for at least two years. And we're going to have to do a different kind of hysterectomy, a more radical. We're not going to do laparoscopy. We're going to actually have to go in. And I'm going to do some advanced, uh, you know, staging with, back then they didn't have the test to see what limp, lymph nodes the tumor would be feeding into. So she just grabbed 40 and also did a full 
cavity wash. And then, and this is a little insider tip that I learned the hard way, they took out a healthy appendix. They said that, you know, you don't need it. And once your abdomen is cut open, you're at risk of infection. So they just, as hospital protocol, remove it. And by the way, probably charge my insurance another 25 grand. And fast forward 18 and a half years later, I'm fully entrenched in functional medicine where we look at the body as a system, don't take for granted anything as not being needed, including your wisdom teeth, by the way, which I still have, but those are connected to meridians in the breast. And a lot of women with breast cancer had extractions on the same side. And uh, that meridian, that energy has been so disrupted or sometimes the extraction is not done correctly and they develop cavitation in the jawbone. I have a girlfriend that was just diagnosed with lymphoma. She saw a lump on her neck. For, again, two years, the head and neck doctor was saying, it's nothing, we'll just keep watching it. And finally, she said, I want you to take it out. And then, much to his surprise, it was cancer. And, of course, at that point, she called me. And I said to her, let's start with your mouth. You know, do you have any root canal? Because that is, never get root canal. It's just, it goes, there's no other part of the body that, once dead is allowed to stay in your body ever, except the tooth, which is full of microscopic holes. And when the tooth is alive, it's a natural filtration system. When it's a dead tooth, it's just leaching infection into your body. So, you know, we at Cancer Schmancer, you know, uh, align ourselves with biologic dentistry. And, uh, and I told my girlfriend, you know, do you have any root canals? She said, I don't, maybe one from like 25 years ago. Uh, and I'm not even, I don't even recall. And then she's, and then I said to her, have you had any extractions? And she said, actually, I did have an extraction six months before I started to show symptoms on the same side. I said, you must go to a biologic dentist because you can have cavitation in the jawbone. And that low-level infection and inflammation over two and a half years could be causing this. And by simply cleaning that out, you might be able to allow your body to heal itself mm -hmm. because the immune system can only do so much with the intervention of human toxicity. So these, this is the pathway that ultimately from the book cancer schmancer, early detection became the cornerstone because I was so grateful that I was on at stage one, even with those mature cells, I was still in stage one, grade two, which means there was no penetration of the endometrial lining, which would have put it into another stage. I was very lucky. I have had a very slow-growing cancer, not as invasive as other gynecologic cancers. So it was just sitting there getting larger, but sitting, not moving. Mm -hmm. And it kind of grows within itself in contrast to like ovarian cancer, which shoots off mm -hmm. seeds and starts spreading very quickly. So I was so grateful to be still be in stage one. I said, why isn't everybody 
diagnosed in stage one when it's most curable. And, um, you know, well, why? Because a lot of uh, people are misdiagnosed, as was I. A lot of women in particular uh, put everything above their own health and well-being. So it takes them a long time of living with low-level chronic symptoms before they actually get help. And because the medical community uh, doesn't do all the diagnostic testing that it should do, uh, you would not be normally given a transvaginal ultrasound unless you were pregnant. And uh, they completely depend on a very archaic bimanual pelvic exam. And in these days of, first of all, obesity, there's no way that a doctor is going to, with two fingers inserted, pressing on the abdomen, know if the endometrial lining is a few centimeters thick, which is a precursor. So, uh, you know, very often it diagnosis happens later because people do not recognize the early warning whispers when it's the most curable and the most easy to dismiss. So we tell people, you know, uh, man, woman, and child, you know, recognize those early warning whispers. And even though that's the time when it's very easy to ignore, recondition yourself to saying this could be nothing but coffee, but it's something I want to catch it at the onset. Because that's when it's the most, you, most people would live. The only reason why we lose loved ones to cancer is almost entirely due to late stage diagnosis. So that's one thing that became the cornerstone of cancer schmancer. But very, uh, you know, just, just a little while after that, you know, I started to think, well, there's so much emphasis put on a cure and so many trillions of dollars that have been put into trying to find a cure since Nixon waged the war in cancer. Where the hell is the cure? And what's the cause? Why don't we find out what the hell the cause is and eliminate it? How's that for a cure? Let's not get cancer in the first place. Nobody's looking at causation because that might cut into somebody's profit margin. And this country is really not a wellness a spirited country. It's it's sick care. It's not really health care. It's sick care. Don't kid yourself. There's a tremendous amount of money in keeping you chronically ill and suppressing your symptoms. And that has to end, but it has to end with you. There's also so much speed with which doctors come to a diagnosis without being thorough in the way that they look at things. Right. And there is too many opportunities for people to turn them into gods. And they're not gods. They're just people. It's and they also- go to medical school and they don't, uh, you know, and they're not really taught to uh, think about causation. And they're not really taught about how food is medicine. You can tell that from what they feed you at hospitals. You know, we're like, remember when they used to show doctors smoking cigarettes yeah. while examining and how that is so hair-raising to us now? It's just, for me, the fact that they don't even question your lifestyle or what trauma you've been through or what you're eating or what you're surrounding yourself with, in, on, and around you. That's the Cancer Schmanza Detox Your Home program. Detox Your Home is a very progressive program because we moved into causation. Let's not get cancer in the first place because nobody else was doing it. All the other uh, organizations in the nonprofit health space 
we're still looking for the next big chemo. But if you live a very toxic life and you don't understand that you are contributing to your own dis-ease, as well as enabling the big business sociopaths who are making you sick, your family sick, your pets sick, and the planet sick, it's your fault because you have remained mindless and infantile at a critical juncture in human history. So Cancer Schmancer provides resources that help people to begin to understand the context they're living in. We have an annual Fran Drescher Masterclass Health Summit that gathers together the most cutting edge, the most mind-blowing, the most amazing medical doctors, went to medical school, drank the Kool-Aid, started practicing, got woke, started questioning there's got to be a better way, and completely pivoted to start practicing through a different window. And these are the groundbreaking individuals that we leverage. And it's not just cancer. Cancer is the end stage of inflammation. It's everything. And it's looking at gut health and understanding how the condition of your gut is your immune system and is your brain. Mm-hmm. If you have anxiety, if you have depression, if you have schizophrenia, if you have uh, Alzheimer's, if you have dementia, if you have Parkinson's, you can bet your bottom dollar that you have a compromised gut microbiome. The whole thing that you just sat and it said extremely clearly, everything you take into your body needs to be organic. You need to eat vegetables. You need to make sure that you allow your gut to be healthy. And, you know, these things to me are so basic and so informed today. And the fact that this is happening and that people like you are leading the change and leading the cause to be more careful and thoughtful about what you do and how you do it, it seems to me that it's the beginning of a monumental change. A in paradigm the shift. Absolutely. And, you know, we're, I mean, people we're don't now smoke realizing anymore. we're not alone out there because as we continue to deepen our commitment to this specifically as a, as the Cancer Schmancer movement, um, you know, we have been introduced to a world of functional and integrative doctors and yeah. authors and chefs that have saved their own lives. I mean, you know, and, and also the world of cannabis is something that we as an organization have been uh, touting as a as a medicinal. And we have a Harvard medical doctor that has talked at the last three health summits because uh, she also, you know, changed completely. Every day, life is going to present itself with an opportunity for you to become a more refined version of yourself. And that is what this journey is. So whatever comes at you, take the high road. Mm -hmm. Always try and take the high road. And if you falter, be mindful of it and then life's going to offer you another opportunity. So it's a holistic approach to living. We have to cut back exponentially on our plastic intake because we're killing ourselves with that. You know, I have people that are talking to me. They're talking about health. They're talking about the complaining about the current administration, complaining, uh, sarcastically saying, all right, there's no, you know, a global warming while they're drinking water from a single-use 
plastic bottle. Well, and this I, is decades of this, too. This did not happen in the last two years. Exactly. I mean, this is a terrible situation. We're being buried alive. We are. And uh, there's nothing and our disposable food sources are about become, plastic. Nothing. Nothing. And our food sources, you know, you talk about the fish in the ocean and the little pieces of plastic that they get from the guys. Oh, and there's so much. And one of the things that I speak about, and I'm going to, you know, come back to that is, you know, I'm, I'm asked to speak at cannabis science conventions. And my positioning on that is this is a new frontier and do not emulate the industrialists of the 20th century because they were short-sighted and they did it wrong and we're paying the price for it now. Well, I just want to tell you that having this conversation, I feel like we just scratched the surface yeah. of you <laughs> as a multifaceted, fascinating person. Congratulations on your success in Thank your you. health care, surviving cancer. Thank you. Thank you personally so much for doing Cancer Schmancer. I'm overwhelmed by the work you're doing. Thank you. Well, I hope everyone goes to cancerschmancer.org and signs up because then you'll get, you know, my newsletters if you do nothing else. If you want to deepen your support and actually, you know, help us financially, we welcome it because we have some spectacular things coming out right now. We shot a half-hour education program starring Jamie Foxx and myself and Jeff Bridges and a bunch of interracial kids targeting tweens, teens, and college-age students uh, to be the change because they don't pay taxes and they don't vote and they don't wield a lot of power in Washington, but they are a multi-billion dollar demographic. And if they become mindful consumers, they wield a yeah. tremendous amount of yeah. power. And if everybody stopped drinking cola today, they'd stop making it tomorrow that quickly. Forget about regulation or who's in the White House. It wouldn't matter. No. Because the bottom line is the bottom line. Right. For sure. <laughs> really. Well, thank you, ladies. It's Thanks been an absolute joy. Thank you. Next time, we'll meet culinary arts instructor Warren Schuler. After 28 years teaching advanced chemistry to New York City's high school students, Warren channeled his passion for cooking into a transformational career as a culinary instructor, teaching New York City's most challenging students. As the founding instructor of an innovative alternative education initiative of the New York City Department of Education called Careers Through Culinary Education, Warren ushered many students who couldn't cut it in traditional schools into successful careers in the culinary arts and has reveled in their success in the cutthroat world of New York restaurants. One of his most treasured moments was dining with his wife at a restaurant that was helmed by a star student, a kid who the system had almost given up on. Warren's life work is evidence of the power of following what you love to find deep meaning in your life's work. After 28 years of teaching chemistry and more than 12 in culinary arts, Warren shifted to teaching workshops, team building, and doing outreach to share basic cooking skills to formerly homeless individuals. Following New York's Superstorm Sandy, he began cooking for a soup kitchen at St. Mark's Center for Community Renewal in Keensburg, New Jersey, and has committed to working there forever. So join us when we rewind to the beginning with Warren Schuler on the next Say It Forward. Thanks for listening to Say It Forward. Help us grow by subscribing to our podcast. Please subscribe on iTunes or at www.sayitforwardpodcast.com. Don't forget to rate and review us on the iTunes store or like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. 